This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who's subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those of you who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. Don't forget to follow the link in the show notes to our new website, where you will get a regularly updated hub of episodes, blog posts, and links to various podcasting services, as well as our Anchor and Patreon page. This is our 12th episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 46, is entitled Hardrada. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, we return to our old friend, Harold Sigurdsson, stepping back a few years to the late 1040s to begin with, as he was returning from his adventures in the East. This episode, of course, fits right where it is in this season of the podcast, but for those who may be joining us for the first time, this will also serve as a continuation of a five-episode miniseries within season two, from episodes 28 through 32 where Harold's journey is outlined in much greater detail. But as a quick recap, Harold Sigurdsson was born in Ringerik, Norway, around 1015, while Canute was continuing his father's conquest of England. By 1028, Harold's stepbrother, King Olaf II, was exiled to Kievan-Rus territory in Norway, was run by Canute's son and ex-wife. However, when his son died at sea, Norway was up for grabs again, and Harold met Olaf with his own contingent, at 15 years old, already a respected warrior in his own right. In 1030, with the intention of helping his brother Olaf reclaim the throne, outside Stickelstad, Harold's life would change forever in the form of a self-imposed exile, first to Kievan-Rus territory, who welcomed him, and then on to Constantinople to become a legendary figure and leader in the famous Varangian Guard. At this point in 1046, Harold had spent the better part of two decades abroad, away from Norway, gaining experience, followers, and most importantly, money. He had fought with the likes of George Maniakis and William Ironarm, and fought against some of Byzantium's most formidable foes, such as the Sicilian Saracens, the Bulgarians, and Muslim pirates in the Mediterranean. He had walked the streets of Jerusalem, Antioch, and Kiev, served as personal bodyguard for an emperor during peace negotiations in the Holy Land, and strolled the halls of the palaces in Constantinople. He had dined with lowly soldiers, become friends with the likes of the Grand Prince Yaroslav the Wise of Kiev, become the lusted-after side hustle of an empress, allegedly, and narrowly escaped death when the political winds suddenly shifted out east. Harold's story to this point was one of sadness, betrayal, adventure, intrigue, battle, and, well, it was an epic tale to say the least. And by the time Harold arrived in Sweden in 1046, it was as if his story was just beginning. 
His days in the blistering desert heat were over. His time fighting in the wild uncharted zones of the Asian steppes were complete. Now he stepped into the already deeply complex social, economic, and political turmoil of the North Sea area. He arrived in Sweden with a heavy contingent of highly trained, battle-hardened Varangian and Kiev soldiers, as well as a royal bride in the form of his old friend's daughter. Elisiv of Kiev was Grand Prince Yaroslav's daughter, connecting Harold, a man without land, to, to the Kievan Rus royalty. This was, in essence, a very unlikely marriage. Regardless of how Yaroslav felt about any suitor, to trust a man on his word of regaining a kingdom before he even made a move to regain it is nothing more than a testament to Yaroslav's faith that Harold does what Harold says he does. And Harold said he was going to take, retake, excuse me, retake Norway as his own and even make moves to rejoin Knut the Great's old North Sea Empire. In Sigtuna, Sweden, Harold stopped to survey the situation. It had changed quite a bit in the last 20 years or so. He noticed that Magnus II, who came to be called, if you remember, Magnus the Good, was the current king of Norway. So there are a couple things to know about Harold's reactions to this. One, there was already someone firmly established and accepted on the throne of Norway, which was a problem. And two, Magnus was the bastard son of Harold's half-brother, Olaf II, making Magnus II Harold's nephew. Surveying it all, Harold also learned that Magnus and King Hartha Knut of Denmark made a pact, as we already know, that whoever should die first, the other would, would gain that person's kingdom. Well, Hartha Knut then went and complicated things by gaining the kingdom of England as well. So Magnus took that as a green light for England on top of Denmark when Hartha Knut died a few, year, a few years into the agreement. With the kingdom of England going to Edward and Denmark having a very short failed rebellion led by the son of Thorkel the Tall and another much larger and longer lasting rebellion led by Swain Esterson, well, Magnus had to choose and he chose Denmark to focus on first. Magnus made many commanding gains in Denmark, but he never quite took it for himself fully. And Harold here, Harold saw an opportunity. He could do one of two things. One, he could contact his nephew in Norway and propose a deal. Or two, he could contact his nephew's enemy in Denmark and propose a deal. Harold? Harold contacted his nephew's enemy, Swain Esterson in Denmark, who happened to be in exile in Sweden at the time. And as if it couldn't be any more complicated, through marriage, Swain Esterson was also Harold's nephew from a different familial line. Harold also invited the Swedish king Annan Jacob as well, and they all came to an agreement, a steady alliance of sorts, with the sole intention of putting Swain Esterson on the throne of Denmark and Harold on the throne of Norway. They gathered their forces and began systematically raiding and destroying Danish ports, wreaking a war of terror on the people. 
Magnus obviously wasn't too pleased with this development, so he gathered his own forces and sailed toward Denmark to meet this new threat. The problem for the usurpers was that the people of both Norway and Denmark were actually enjoying a little peace and stability under King Magnus II, which is partly why he earned the nickname Magnus the Good. They began to show a little resistance by the time Magnus arrived, stifling Harold's swings and Anna Jacob's plans. Harold pivoted and turned north toward his own ancestral home in Ringerik, a place his father was the king of decades earlier. Magnus, too, turned his forces toward Harold's homeland in Norway's interior, but his counselors and warlords convinced him not to engage the old Varangian. Instead, use a little diplomacy. In late 1046, Harold and Magnus reached an agreement that they would co-rule the Kingdom of Norway, though Magnus did have the majority of support, therefore giving him the unofficial step up on the monarchical power. Also, it's important to note that Harold, having offered up his near-bankrupt nephew, his vast riches from his work in the East, Harold was entitled to exactly 0% of the Kingdom of Denmark. Denmark would be solely ruled by Magnus, though Harold would be expected to provide forces and resources to aid Magnus's claims there. Kind of a short end of the, the deal there on, uh, for Harold's part. The next year in 1047, the two men and their forces sailed to Denmark to quell more unrest caused by Swain Esterson. So Magnus and Swain had come to an agreement that was similar, I suppose, but not near the extent as the deal between Magnus and Harthaknut. Should Magnus die, Denmark would immediately fall to Swain Esterson, and all tensions between Norway and Denmark would cease. Well, mere months into Norway's joint rulership, Magnus died. Suddenly, and without a reason recorded, he just died. So, okay... Harold is now the king of Norway. Nothing fishy there, of course. And Swain Esterson was the king of Denmark. Well, yes and no. Denmark tried to abide by King Magnus's wishes, and they supported Swain Esterson as their new king. But Harold Sigurdsson didn't quite see it that way. By his co-rulership with Magnus, Harold stated that he was entitled to all deals made by the king of Norway, and since the king of Norway was now him, that meant that he was now entitled to Denmark, thus sparking a, a whole new wave of warfare and violence in the 1050s. King Harold II, it's clear by now, doesn't play games. He didn't himself devise, and he doesn't abide by rules he himself didn't create. Initially, the kingdom was shocked by the news when they heard that Harold had taken over completely. He was met with a stout near-rebellion of his own. It was mainly led by a deeply rooted Norwegian clan led by Einar Thambarkelskelver. I am so sorry, I butchered that. Who mainly didn't agree with the direction Harold was taking the kingdom in. That is, restarting war with Denmark. Now, by 1047-1048, Einar wasn't just some rando who stood up to make a scene in order to create a name for himself. The name Einar, please don't make me say the last name, was already known by just about every nobleman in Norway. See, Einar had been around a long time. I mean, a really 
really long time, having been born, as far as we know, in the early 980s. That means when he stood up to his new king, Harold Sigurdsson, he was already in his 60s. And on top of that, he had been near legendary since the year 1000, when he fought alongside King Olaf I Tryggvason at the Battle of Svalder, the very battle where Olaf Tryggvason had disappeared and he'd been presumed dead. In addition, King Canute had overlooked Einar when the, when the king placed his son and ex-wife, as I said, as heads of state in, New, in Norway. And this created an enemy in Einar because he had supported Canute loyally in recent years. He joined an alliance with Kalvarnason, if you remember who was the leader of the opposition that killed King Olaf II, Harold's half-brother, at Stickelstad. And these men agreed to support King Olaf II's illegitimate son, Magnus, as king, knowing they could control the young man. Essentially, Einar and Kalv Arneson became the Godwins of Norway for a time. And here we are in 1048, on the cusp of a Norwegian civil war between Einar and Harald. And it was Harald's turn to use a bit of that diplomacy he'd learned in his years among the Kievan and Byzantine elite. The two made a shaky peace, allowing Harald to take the full reins. Wait, they didn't make peace? Harald wasn't using diplomacy to establish his reign as king of Norway? Uh, no. In fact, Harald used what Harald knew. Harald used violence. See, Harald made like he wanted to make peace. But when Einar and his son, Eindrid, showed up for their sit-down, Harald murdered them both himself. Now, just another piece of evidence that Scandinavian women were just plain B.A. It turns out Einar's wife was a little miffed at the king's treachery, <laughs> so she raised her own army, one led with such hatred and fervor that Harold was forced to escape rather than fight. But wild as that story is, and Harold's grander story, it's just a blip on the radar. It's not the first time Harold ticked someone off, and it certainly won't be the last. Harold embarked upon some of the most ambitious economic reforms of the times. And I mention them here because Harold Sigurdsson's legacy is one that could very well be attributed to a, a beastly ruler who knew nothing but war and violence. And to an extent, that's true. But when you dig deeper, you'll find so much more. Harold went straight away and created Norway's first mint. The advantages of minting coins is that whoever controls the mint controls the flow of money in and out of the community. Harold not only created the mint, but he put himself in charge of it, firmly establishing Norway as a centralized market economy. Harold, by consequence, became a very, very rich man very quickly, which is saying something because he entered the kingdom already an incredibly rich man. In addition, as we learned already on the podcast, when a king mints his own coins, he will have his name and his likeness on each and every coin in circulation. This is a major boon in the days before print and the internet, as far as, as, as the people, even in the incredibly basic forms, had not only had a rough image of their ruler, but also a constant reminder of him as well. Minting your own coins is no small matter. It had economic as well as cultural implications. In fact, on one side of the coin, see what I did there? It had only the words Harold Rex carved along the edges. But between Rex and Harold, 
was a Christian cross, and in the center of the coin was a Norse design called the triketra, which was a symbol that aided in the immersion of Christianity into Norse paganism, as Christians saw it as a symbol for three fish, the fish being a symbol for Christ from the original Greek texts. While those still practicing Norse, Norse pantheonic worship saw it as a version of the Valknut, which was three interlocking triangles. And see, the funniest thing about having the cross on his coins is that many accounts has Harold not even being Christian. I mean, there are a lot of other accounts that came later that say that Harold was very pious, um, but more uh, contemporary accounts, you could say, um, they're, a little, they're a little mixed in those reviews. So now he wasn't, let's say he wasn't actually pagan either. He, he just kind of adapted to his environment just enough to do what he needed to do. I don't know the truth of it, but with conflicting reports, that's kind of where my mind lands. He just adapted to his environment. He probably gravitated more toward the Norse pantheon, I would imagine, because that's how he grew up, and inner Norway was still very pagan. But he had spent a considerable, a considerable amount of his life in Eastern Orthodox lands of both Kiev and Constantinople, so it's curious how he managed to hang around as long as he did in those positions he was put in, if in fact he wasn't Christian. Was there a certain amount of faking it he did, or did he just have that kind of personality that he just did what he wanted without too much of a fuss from others? You know, we'll just never know. But we do know that when he got to Norway, Harold knew very well he was in Latin Christian territory. So if he wanted to stay in power, he had some politicking to do. These coins are a testament to this political acumen of his, the cross, as well as the triketra. And I wonder if Harold gathered that information when he used Byzantine coins to not only store his wealth, but also in his transactions where barter was obsolete. Now, barter was Norway's major trade custom at the time, but Harold changed all of that with the introduction of his coins into the economy. And since Norway was one of the last major communities to not have a coin system in Europe, Norway was immediately exploding with new trade opportunities, thus flooding the kingdom with foreign wealth, the same kind of wealth that enriched England for centuries. In addition to this, King Harold also used his connections in places as far away as Constantinople and Kiev to establish very firm trade networks, further enriching his kingdom and himself. Norway would benefit from these networks for centuries more. And the thing about Harold was that, obviously, he had a bit of adventurousness in him, a tendency to, to get antsy when he stayed in one place for too long. So Harold went sailing one day, and Harold didn't come back for a while. It said he's, he went many different places, but I think the most reliable sources say that he was driven by those stories of Vinland and the stories of Eric the Red. So he decided to go adventuring again, and it turns out he ended up in some pretty faraway places up around what is today some of the islands in northern Russia above the Arctic Circle. When Harold returned, it was back to work, though. But first, Harold needed somewhere a little closer to the action than Trondheim, which is up the western coast of Norway. 
He settled on a small, already established fishing village in the North Sea that had been around as early as the turn of the millennium. It had been named, uh, or it had the name to that point of Anslow up to the year 1049 or 1050 when King Harold was looking for a new central hub of Norwegian relations with Denmark. Traveling from the North Sea into a fjord, Harold arrived at this little fishing village and established it as a new governmental center as well as an important trading port. That same year, the famous church named Maria Kerken was built as well to welcome Christian traders to an already uh, still very much thought of as pagan area. It would be from Anslo, or as we know it today, Oslo, where King Harold would spend most of the rest of his reign. Well, at least when he was home, that is. And let me do a quick correction. As I'm, as I'm talking on this podcast, I realized I referred to uh, King Harold as King Harold II earlier, and I want to just take that moment to clarify it is King Harold III Sigurdsson. That is the Harold we're talking about, and I apologize for that confusion. King Harold III Sigurdsson was certainly on the offensive for most of the 1050s, and the records don't really indicate too much other than a lot of coastal raiding. But in the year 1049, Harold invaded the strategically and culturally important Danish Midlands, and by 1050, he reached the large city of Hedeby by boats from the east. Setting his ships alight, he sailed them straight into the harbor, and the result was a catastrophic Danish loss. The sagas record the atrocity by saying the following, Burnt in anger from end to end was Hedeby. High rose the flames from the houses when, before dawn, I stood upon the stronghold's arm. So those who fled to the outskirts of town came back to ruins, which makes me think of the horrible sacking and destruction of the legendary port town of Jomsborg. Hedeby would slowly be rebuilt in the ensuing years, but just in case we don't return to its fate, let's go ahead and just share it now. Though still a far cry from the bustling economic center of Denmark that it had been prior to the sacking, by 1066, a band of raiding Slavs from northern Germany and Poland sacked it. And then, when the dust settled a few days later, these Slavs returned and finished the job, torching it to the ground. It was at this point that Hedeby had seen its last days. In fact, it wasn't until around the year 1900 that archaeological work would begin to give people people's glimpses of what its once vibrant and somewhat cosmopolitan nature was. This, to be honest, in addition to places around the world like Pompeii and Cahokia and Angkor, Angkor Wat, gives me hope that one day we will uncover the other legendary places such as Jomsburg, to be honest. Herod had just, Harold had just about pushed his, past his near limitless amount of luck when on a raid of Jutland in 1050, he was doing just the last few raids on the coastal towns before heading back to Oslo when Swain Esterson's forces caught up to him. Harold's ships were not only full of Norwegian soldiers, but also his loot he'd gathered and captives as well, captives who would be sold at Oslo's and Trondheim's slave markets. As Swain's fleet neared, Harold knew he was just too weighed down, so he ordered his men to dump the loot, stat. 
and Swain's forces continued to gain ground on Harold's boats, bypassing these resources that are floating in the water. So Harold was forced to dump the rest of his cargo, that is, people, into the deadly frigid waters of the North Sea. Now at first Harold figured Swain might stop to grab the resources floating there, but now he knew, just knowing Swain, he knew that Swain would stop to help the drowning Danes, and this, this right here was how Harold was able to get away. Imagine how different history would be had Swain bypassed the captives flailing around in the water and caught up to Harold. Now, these sorts of raiding parties and invasionary forces would continue throughout the 1050s. In fact, Norway versus Denmark would become its own El Clasico for the next 12 years, as reliable as the seasons, you could say. So switching gears here just for a moment, no one knows exactly, and I mean switching gears, by the way, no one knows exactly when King Harold III Sigurdsson of Norway actually earned his nickname that would distinguish him from the plethora of other heralds in history. But it had to have been in the 1050s, I would say, because it was then that Norwegians were pretty well aware of how their new king would rule. Before we get to the nickname, though, that everyone knows him by, there's another that he was pretty fond of himself, even though he gave it to himself. <laughs> Fair hair. The problem with that is that Harold Fairhair was already taken, taken in fact by Harold's recent ancestor. But King Harold III was a, by all accounts, a straight-up hottie, apparently. He was very tall, as Harold Godwinson would famously comment uh, on September of 1066, with big hands, long flowing blonde hair, piercing blue eyes, and a mustache that today would probably be called a handlebar mustache. Now these are accounts shared with us long after Harold was dead, but this is what we have to go on, so it does paint a little bit of a picture there. And this long blonde hair was what he was reported to derive his own nickname for himself. When you're as hard of a leader as Harold, a comment about your beautiful hair locks isn't exactly what people remember about you. It didn't matter that he was a poet, or scald, as they called him, that he could brew his own beer, that he was a military legend in more places than two hands could count on. No, when you're as much of a jerk as Harold could be as king, you pretty much lock yourself into a certain set of names. And I think, Her I think Hardrada was probably the nicest of them, which is what survives to us today. Hardrada has been translated in a number of ways, and none of them are that flattering. The most accepted translation is hard ruler. That is, Harold hard ruler, or as we know him today, Harold Hardrada. But it wasn't just the way he treated the local opposition, or his absolute destruction of Hedeby, or the swath of destruction he left along the coasts of Jutland throughout the 1050s that earned him that nickname either. It was the way he treated his own people at times, too. There was a little incident in the mid-1050s in which a specific local lord refused to collect taxes for the king, so Harold decided to pay them a little visit of his own and collect those taxes personally. Needless to say, the rebellion cowed pretty quickly, and Harold collected his taxes, but not after inflicting unspeakable punishments 
on the Norwegian farmers who had originally refused to comply. Harold Hardrada, indeed. We still have so much more to talk about as Harold's story is, isn't finished quite yet. He has, as they say, a date with destiny coming really soon, but suffice it to say that during the 1050s, Harold's rule over Norway was a bit of a mixed bag. Norway did, in fact, pull itself out of an economic slump and greatly expand its trade networks. Norway, at Harold's behest, did change from a barter and service market economy to a much more modernized coin-based market economy, allowing Norway to compete with much more successful trading areas in England, Ireland, Flanders, and even as far away as Sicily. And Harold Hardrada ushered in another decade or more of warfare, mainly with Denmark, and he treated his people harshly at times. But the question of Harold Hardrada's reign really boils down to whether the ends justified the means. And that's such a difficult question to answer whenever it's asked. Of course, Harold Hardrada's reign is considered, on the one hand, quite brutal and bellicose. I mean, look at the guy. He was nothing but a chiseled out war vet who knew nothing else than warfare and the threat of death since as early as 15 years old. But to be honest, he showed up to that battle with his own army, so it was probably earlier than 15. But on the other hand, Norway made considerable, and I mean considerable, gains economically, not to mention the further inroads he allowed the Latin church to make inside of a transitioning pagan to Christian kingdom at the far edges of Christendom. Well, I'm not going to try to answer whether the ends justified the means or not, because when you study history, I don't think that's always the right question to ask. Sometimes the right question is simply what the means were and to what end. You can answer the whys of Harold's outcomes, but there won't simply be one right answer because outcomes look differently to everyone. I'm going to leave it like I leave a lot of my tough questions when learning history. Have I found the right means for the ends that occurred? I'll repeat, have I found the right means for the ends that occurred? If I can accept that certain ends occurred, then what's it matter if the means were justified or not? So that's just something to think about when reflecting upon Harold Hardrada's story, as well as any historical figure story from Hardrada to, say, Mao, for instance. Have you come to realize that the ends were what they were, for better or for worse, and then sought to discover accurate means that led them there? When we get to the end of Harold's story, I hope this question comes back to you. I know it will me. I find reigns like Harold Hardrada's difficult to wrap my head around because I don't condone that sort of leadership and violence, obviously, but I'm also aware, vividly aware, that life lived a full 1,000 years ago was far different than one I live today. I simply cannot hold them accountable in the same way I hold, say, Chavez in Venezuela accountable for the atrocities and humanitarian crises he ushered in. But I can learn from them both, objectively. I can learn how things led to them ruling. I can learn how they ruled. I can, I can learn how the people reacted. And in the case of those in the past, I can learn how one can emer emerge from such rulership. We've seen a lot of these examples so far in the show. Leaders like 
Dukes William the Bastard and his dad, Robert le Magnifique, King Ethelred II and King Canute the Great, Pope Leo IX and Patriarch Michael Serralarius, George Maniakis, Drogo de Hautbeau, we've covered quite a few already. And more will come, which is why I'm tucking this in here at the end of an episode about one of the hardest rulers of the 11th century, Harold Hardrada. Again, can I put my modern biases and sentiments and values aside while I learn about very different cultures in very different times in order to simply understand what happened and how it led to that? Well, that's a fair question. And it's a quite crucial question as far as I'm concerned. Well, can I? Can you? Can we use the means of dismissing our biases and sentiments and values in order to come to the end of better understanding how history has progressed? I hope you enjoyed today's episode about Harold Hardrada's reign in Norway during the 1050s. Please keep sharing the show on your favorite podcasting service and Please don't forget to contact the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions, questions, concerns, and even corrections. The link to the new website is in the show notes, so head over there for an updated episodes, blogs, and even news too. Also, please consider supporting the show on Patreon and, and or Anchor, or even just heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review. Next week, next week, we return to England. You can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared past here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time.